0: Saying anything all that important or revolutionary that the world's going to be waiting around for <laughs> Oh man, the first minute I got cut off. <laughs> I'm not sure we know how to move forward now. Maybe I am. I hope you know, know that's, uh, that's something to to. Um Anyway, good morning, and thanks for being here. Uh, I, I noticed some of the faces that were here yesterday, and some new faces. So so, so welcome, so. and thank you for for being a part of this. Um, uh, in this class, <laughs> this, is, this is a two-part class. It started yesterday. And I'm asking some basic questions that this represent works. two sides of my own professional work as well as my own kind of personal Jesus do interfaith work uh, and talked about uh, interreligious peace building and what that looks like from a Christian perspective. Um, kind of played around the edges of that and we, we, we brought some things to the surface and hopefully that was, was helpful. Talking about Christian calls to interreligious peace building. Um, both for the world that we serve, but also for ourselves and our own formational uh, um, own formations as people and as Christians. Today I want to talk, I'm going to transition a little bit and talk about another side of, of my and Sarah and my uh, professional life and interest in, in life, and that's development work. And the two are going to be linked together because a lot of, for me, a lot of the work that we've done in development is is directly connected to different religious communities and different ethnic and religious and linguistic communities and what it means to work in those kind of environments uh, uh, to bring about peace and to be peacemakers. And what I'm going to do today, and so yesterday I was drawing for those that uh, were here, drawing on a, on my book, Better Religion, which is an introduction to interreligious peace building. Today I'm going to draw a little bit more on um, on our nonprofit organization, which is called Kibo, and I'll put the information up about that here um, in in just a minute. Um, I'm actually so Kibo operates in Uganda, East Africa, and uh, we're in our third decade now, and it does. Uh, mostly rural grassroots uh, uh, peace-building work uh, and justice work. And so I'll I'll be talking a little bit about that as well. Um, I started this way yesterday, but I want to say it uh, today as well. My spirit in this, in fact, as I was looking at the titles that I chose, um, uh, I thought, oh, that's not a very good title, because what it does is it kind of of sets this uh, up as I'm going to give the answers for how Jesus would do this or that or and I just want you to know my spirit in this as I said this yesterday my spirit isn't a here's the question so in this really important harbor hopefully they can get this recording because I'm getting ready to give like a definitive answer for all time that's not my spirit my spirit is how what questions can we ask what stories can we hear what what imaginations can be expanded that invite us into a a broader understanding of ourselves, our faith, and Jesus, and the place that we're supposed to have in the world. So this is kind of an uh, um, open-ended approach that I'm I'm taking. And what I'm going to do today, even more than yesterday, is I'm going to do that just by sharing a couple of stories and a couple of principles, and then just kind of letting that be what it is. And hopefully, and this is one of the reasons I went ahead and got started uh, I wanted to, to end a little bit earlier today than I did yesterday so that we can have some, some, um, uh, some Q&A. So here's the, here's the transition from yesterday to today. What I hope was a big takeaway from yesterday, for those of you that were here, is that we live in a world where relig- we live in a religiously vibrant world. And by that, I mean, religions are growing all over the world, despite what some people assume in the United States, that uh, secularization is making is pushing religion to the outside. There are some reasons for that narrative, and we talked some about that yesterday. It's a very complicated thing. But in general, re- all major world religions, every religion that you can name, is growing in the world in both raw numbers and relative percentages. It is getting bigger, is getting more impactful in the world, and there are new religions and very complex new kind of spiritualities. Do we even call that religion? That's part of the debate. But new spiritualities and hybrids and mixtures and what scholars call new religious movements growing and popping up everywhere. We live in a world where religion... Um, uh, is is alive and well for better or worse, depending on someone's take on, on that. Um, uh, and even in the United States, where we have a, a growing disinterest in institutional religions and some of the older institutional forms of religion, you have exploding interest in spiritualities of all different kinds and forms. And we can either see that as a, as Christians, we can either see that as a threat or an opportunity. Um, and uh, part of what I'm hoping to do is kind of uh, lean into that, uh, that kind of, those kind of questions. And so we live in a world where religion is growing and, and here's the other takeaway from yesterday, where religions are intermingling and interacting with one another more than at any point in human history. And so what I was asking uh, yesterday is what to be a Christian in the 21st century, to be a vibrant church in the 21st century, we have got to come to grips with what it means and how we interact with religious communities other than our own. We have to be attentive to those things. We need to be uh, ready uh, to engage those things. And I wanna start today, as I transition, by talking about three approaches, and this will transition us from, as you'll see in a second, from interreligious peace building to development work, three approaches that churches can take in, uh, in our religiously complex growing world. And the first approach is that we just do nothing about it, right? We're we're not sure. A lot of churches, a lot of church leaders, we're not sure what to do. It's confusing. There are a lot of things going on around us. Um, uh, You know, we want to stay civil. We want to avoid being judgmental. But otherwise, we're not real sure what to do. And so, you know, we may see a mosque going up over here or some other religious community doing this special event uh, or this parade going on 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 Saturday or whatever it might be. We're not sure what to do about all of that, and so we just kind of stay focused on our internal church stuff. Let's just do our internal church stuff, let's try to do that really well, and let's not worry about what's, what's outside of us. And I think that's a failure to be attentive to the world that, uh, that God has placed us in to love and to serve. And part of what I was saying yesterday is I think it can also, it's not just a failure to be attentive, it can also be deformational or at least we lose opportunities as Jesus followers to be formed by the way that the Spirit is at work in the world around us. Um, So anyway, one approach is we do nothing. Another approach to interreligious realities around us that churches and Christians sometimes take is to think of it in terms of competition, right? That these these are forces and these are realities that are alarming to us, maybe they're a little bit threatening to us, um, uh, we we know we shouldn't just do nothing, um, but we have this mentality of we need to com- we need to fight fire with fire here. We need to compete against this. We need to take this on, and sometimes that comes in the form of just uh, well, boy, if these other religious groups are doing this and this, we need to do what we're doing a little bit louder, and so we do our PR work in church a little bit louder. Um, uh, trying to make sure, let's, let's make sure we beat them to the punch for this issue in our neighborhood or whatever, but it's all cloaked in a kind of competition. You guys are familiar with the way competition can also turn uh, very negative. Um, I have this, and I've blocked out the name of the church, just to, uh, I'm not interested in uh, um, pointing out things uh, about specific groups. But this was in California a couple of years ago, and this is an actual pamphlet that was handed out on a day when the Sikh community, if you're not familiar with Sikhism, Sikhism is a, the fifth largest religion in the world, comes out of India, a lot of Sikhs in California, New York, other, at the extremities of the United States. And in California, the Sikhs were doing a peace parade. And there were thousands and thousands of Sikhs with their turbans and their, and their beards and their, and their long hair out holding signs and going down the, uh, the, the street of this town, um, inviting community to peace and uh, uh, um, declaring the Sikh community's commitment to peace. And this local church, they decided that they didn't need to do nothing they needed to compete, they needed to uh, they felt like they needed to confront this community. Out of love is the language that they use. And so they made these pamphlets and they stood on the side of the road as the Sikh peace parade came by. and they handed these pamphlets out. and some of you are, are reading this uh, have read it already, but um, uh, I mean, it does use the language of these are our words of love to our Sikh friends. Um, and it basically says, you know, you need to become a Christian, and you need to, to, to start practicing understanding God and practicing religion and faith like we do, or you're going to go to hell. Now, we can, we can back up, and this is not what I'm going to do today, although I'm very interested in doing this, and I do this at other times. We can have our debates and our conversations about the theologies of salvation involved in that. Um, how do we understand hell? How do we understand the, the fate or the destiny of religious others? And what does it mean to love our religious neighbors? We, those are very, very important um, conversations for us to have. But the thing I want to point out here is what you have is you have an approach to inter-reli- interreligious interactions that, is, that can only see the Christian response as confrontational. That our job is to make sure we warn them, and, and we need to do it nicely, but let's make sure we warn them. All right, so a lot we could say about that, but the first two approaches, we do nothing because we're not sure what to do or maybe we just uh, talk a little louder for our own stuff, or we take the competition approach and we confront, whether we confront theologically or we compete politically or whatever it might be. What I did yesterday... was give at least an opportunity for us to see and imagine a different approach. And those of of you that were were here uh, yesterday, I talked about the Heart Song Community Church just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, and told the the story, brief version here, although I'm going to add a piece, uh, that in changing, this is in 2010, there was a lot of uh, um, national controversies around Islam, a lot of concerns about terrorism, a lot of stuff was going on. And the Heart Song Community Church in Cordova, Tennessee, had a big mosque uh, planned right next to them. And and the pastor was concerned. He didn't know what to do. He was confused. He didn't understand much about Islam. But he decided, when I don't know what to do, I lean into the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus says, love our neighbor. And so they put up a big sign. And they said, they, they, they entered into a gray zone here where they launched into some uncharted territories of showing mercy and love in a way that they didn't know exactly how all of it was going to play out. Well, the way it played out was some people in the church left. They thought, oh, the pastor is the, you know, just a display of, of welcome to our Muslim friends is like condoning a false religion, and so a lot of people left. You, you guys know these debates. Other people stayed, but they weren't sure, Other, but they started to lean into it. The church took on what is now more than a decade-long journey, of friendship with this Muslim community. They do community meals together. The church brings halal meat so that, that everyone can eat. They have joint ventures where they serve the homeless, where they um, do tutoring for, for local kids. This mosque and this church have become a, a religious lighthouse for, uh, for, that, for that town outside of Memphis and a lot of these things. It's spun out into other things now, too. There's something called the, the Memphis Friendship Foundation Look it up uh, if you're you're interested. They're doing all kinds of things in Memphis and beyond. Um, But here's the part that I didn't say yesterday that transitions us to development. When this church did this, uh, and when this mosque and this church formed this relationship, um, pretty early on it started to get attention, and it started to be picked up by some news organizations, uh, both local, um, national, and international, And a little Muslim community in Kashmir, uh, uh, so you can't make these kind of stories up. We're talking about a little village in Kashmir, Muslim-majority area um, north of India, um, uh, heard this report. And they actually reached out to Pastor Stone, the guy in Memphis. And they said, and I, I, I brought the exact quote here, the Muslim leader, the imam in Kashmir said, We were convinced that God was speaking to us through this American pastor. So they gathered themselves and they went and they, um, uh, I was about to say confronted, but that's not the right word. They went and they um, uh, knocked on the door (laughs) of the, the Christian church in that village, a minority Christian community, and they said... We want to take care of you because they had been under attack in some areas. They'd been attacked by their, in their Muslim-majority area. They cleaned up their church. They, uh, they built a little relationship with this little uh, Christian community. And then they sent a message to Pastor Stone and his church in Cordova that said this, quote, we are now trying to be good neighbors too. We have learned this from you. Tell your congregation that we love them. And for the rest of our lives, we are going to take care of our little church. And Kashmir. All right. So, again, we can talk about, and it's very important for us to talk about issues of salvation and what does this mean and all of this, but at least here we have three visions of how Jesus calls us to interact with with religious neighbors in our world. One, do nothing. Two, think of them as competition. Or three, go into that uncharted territory of extending mercy and grace and seeing what God does with it. And in this case... What God did with it was not just start serving the homeless and and childrens in in the Memphis area and create peace around two religious communities, um, but it also ended up protecting some of our fellow Christians on the other side of the planet, and inspired some Muslims on the other side of the planet. In this and, and it doesn't mean that. Very few of these Muslims became Christians, and I don't know if any of the Christians became Muslims, but you had these two religious communities that are interacting with one another in peace and in compassion. And I'm just asking, can we open up our imagination for what that might look like in our local congregations and our local communities? What does that look like? It's never going to look the same in any context. It has to be context specific. But can we open up our imagination to what God is calling us to be and to do in a world that is inevitably becoming more religiously diverse? And these, whether it's a mosque trying to build a, a or an Islamic community trying to build a mosque next to our church, or if it's, you know, whatever it might be, these kind of are Sikhs coming down the road, doing a peace parade, or whatever it might be, these kind of scenarios are only increasing in number and impact in our world, in the United States, and we have got to get ourselves more ready for that. And that's my passion, and that's kind of what, uh, where, um, where some of this goes. But as we, as we move toward interfaith, uh, the way interfaith work now works for development, I've already hinted at that in Memphis, in, uh, in Kashmir, now let me tell you a story. I said all I'm going to do, I really have two more stories. All I'm going to do is tell a couple of stories today and see what this generates in us. Let me tell you a story about another part of the world and something that uh, is significant. I want to tell you about the Acholi Religious Leaders Peace Initiative uh, that has been going on now for almost 30 years in the country of Uganda uh, in East Africa. And um, the best way that I can, that I can talk about this, uh, and, and what we have here is you ha- you'll see here in just a minute, you have a story of interreligious peace building that has massive development and formational implications for its communities. And so that's what, that's what this is about. So, um, and, and this is also on my mind, I'm actually getting on a plane in two days to go to Uganda, so um, uh, this, this, is, this is on my mind right now. If you know anything about Uganda, uh, Americans uh, often are aware of the story of Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army. Um, even if you don't know those names, you've probably picked up on some pieces of this. For, for over 20 years, starting in the mid-80s, a militia group in northern Uganda called the Lord's Resistance Army, led by a militia group leader named Joseph Kony, who's still, still alive, um, formed in northern Uganda, which was a somewhat unstable place anyway, and, and they started to enact decades of terror. There are a lot of details about this. Probably what, if, you've heard, if, you, if you think you've heard about this, what you've probably heard about are the child soldiers. And so there were about 75,000 children abducted either for soldiering or sex, uh, sex trafficking or, or sex slavery. Um, There were two million people displaced. There were whole communities that were decimated in northern Uganda over several decades time. And of course, this started to get attention. It got attention in Uganda. There, There are a lot of, and I won't go into it all, but there are a lot of complex political things going on in Uganda, but the Ugandan government tried to come down with military force Spent 20 years. I mean, this is, a, this is a militia group of about 200 people creating that kind of havoc. I mean, you talk about the evil that can be done by small numbers as well as the good that can be done by small numbers. But um, you had a, the Ugandan military that came in. The U.S. military started combining with the Ugandan military to try to help. Spent years trying to track Joseph Kony down, doing all kinds of stuff. Think about this statistic. The U.S. military spent a billion dollars, one billion dollars, B, trying to help this, this be addressed. The UN got involved. At one point, the UN said this is one of the worst uh, uh, human t- humanitarian crises in the world. All this was going on, and Joseph Kony and his little band of militiamen continued to abduct children, decimate the communities, and all of this happened, or all of this kept happening, until a little group of local interreligious leaders got together and said, we think this is on us. And they called, they started in 1998. They've now been themselves in operation for over 20 years. The Acholi Religious Leaders Peace Initiative. It started with, uh, it sounds like the beginning of a joke, an imam, uh, a priest. And uh, uh, it started with a, uh, a couple of Christian leaders, um, notably not from Conservative Protestant groups, by the way, they came in later, but a Catholic priest, an Anglican priest, uh, an imam in the Muslim mosque, and an African traditional religion uh, leader um, in the area. And they came together and they decided, we, we are the ones to make a change here. Um, if you want to read about this, I encourage you to get the book on the screen. Um, it's a brand new book. It's called "We Are the Voices of the Grass," and it's a very detailed account of what the uh, what the Acholi peace initiative, how it began, what it did, what it what it was up against. But here's the here's kind of the bottom line of it. And by the way, we are the voice in the grass. That there's a there's an Acholi proverb in northern Uganda that says, "When two elephants fight." the grass is what suffers, the grass gets trampled. And uh, the two elephants in this case were militia groups and governments, whether the Ugandan government or the international government, these big forces were fighting and the people, the communities were the grass getting trampled on and the uh, Acholi Religious Leaders Peace Initiative, uh, their motto became, we are the grass and we will be the voice of the grass. And so what this is, is it's, it, you have local religious leaders that have no clout outside of their little communities. They, are, they live in a small little world like many of us feel like in our l- religious communities. Like, wow, there's a lot of forces. There are a lot of elephants out there. And here we are, just a little blade of grass trying to do our thing in our local community. But these few little blades of grass got together, and in a few years, they pulled off the peace and the stop to the Civil War that the UN, the Ugandan government, the U.S. military, a billion dollars, invisible children, other, other things that maybe you're familiar with, were not able to do over 25 years. It's an amazing story. And the reason for me and my thing here, and talking about interreligious peace building and development, the reason it's an amazing story is because it highlights the power of local faith community leaders and their ability to reach out peacefully and openly and inclusively with others to not just sit and do nothing and think well let's just try to do the PR in our work or not to think of themselves in competition or or, uh, as in confrontation modes but to see those Sikhs walking down saying we want to be about peace and to see those Muslims saying you know we really want to help bring about uh, positive civic relations and to engage that and to open ourselves to that and to see how Jesus calls us to that and how Jesus would shape that in us. And when we're open to that, and I think this is a, is an example, some really truly amazing things can happen. Um, so much I want to say about that, I, I, I but I need to move on. Uh, last thing I'll say about the 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 this uh, initiative is the Civil War ended around two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, or so. Um, but when there's been almost 30 years of abducted children and decimated villages, and I mean, the, the, it, is, it is generations of healing that needs to take place. But because the gunfire stopped, um, it's no longer a hot issue. It has stopped getting the international attention. It's, it's stopped getting all of that. There's still some relief organizations that are in Northern Uganda doing some things. But the Acholi Religious Leaders Peace Initiative, those same people, oh, where did they go? Oh, those same people are, uh, are still there. They're still working in the channels for forgiveness, for reintegration. They have a whole project that is still trying to welcome back kids that had been abducted into soldiering and then are trying to reintegrate into their communities. That's a complicated thing when those kids had AK-47s put in their hands and they were killing community members that are now trying to welcome them back. It is tough stuff. And who's doing it? An imam, a priest, a pastor, um, and these local people that had an imagination for what God might do across religious diverse diverse lines. Um, And the development work that's happening now to reintegrate people, to bring back basic necessities, to to help people to um, share the water sources that are around them and so forth is is a, a large part of it is taking place because of their initiative. All right, last story and last illustration here. We have, <clears throat> so that's in northern Uganda, and uh, again, without going into details, um, Sarah and I lived in southern Uganda, in the south, uh, south part of Uganda for a number of years, and um, did church work and evangelism and, and things like that, but got more and more invited into and pulled into development work trying to understand what does it mean for us to be Jesus representatives in some diverse community efforts to address the challenges of poverty and injustice. And we got more and more pulled into that, realizing that when our church work isn't also all of this, then we're missing something. And reading Jesus' ministry and the way, what Jesus' ministry was all about. So we, we certainly learned that the line between church work and development work needed to be porous and blurred at least. Um, and we, were, we found ourselves invited more and more into those kinds of, 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 those kinds of things. But we also learned a great humility uh, lesson over the years, both in our church work and in our development work. But the humility lesson, and the Acholi leaders thing is an example of this, the humility lesson was, we realized that we had the privilege of being invited into some partnerships but we were not coming in as the solution givers or certainly not, I mean the language that's used now, we were certainly not coming in as the outside saviors or the outside experts, whether because of our education, our money, our religion, whatever it was, we learned not to see Uganda or more importantly Ugandans as the recipient of our charity, or the recipient of our grace, as if we were the saviors coming in. Rather, we started to figure out more and more, we're still on this journey, how to understand ourselves as just being privileged partners and allies with people that we love in this interdependent, uh, intersubjective world of faith helping people that we love and then them helping us as we all try to flourish as human beings. And if anything, as an educated, wealthy, white, uh, Christian American, and this is the language we've used, as we get into this dance with Ugandans to try to, and that's a metaphor that's important to them, as we get into this dance, trying to address some of the challenges that they face in their world, we actually aren't even the leaders. They're the leaders and the, the, the metaphor that I often use is if you, if, you, know, if you think of a couple's dance, for, for a couple to dance with one another, someone's got to be in the lead and someone's got to be following. Otherwise, you're just stepping on each other's shoes and you're tripping and you're falling down. And in our development work, and I'm convinced that this is part of what Jesus would have us do, in our development work in Uganda, we are in partnership. We are dancing with our Ugandan friends and communities, but we are the, we are the, we are the submissive partner. It's They they are the lead partner, and that makes us allies and and supporting partners, empowering partners, and that's a very, very important part of of what we do and how we approach it. Um, uh, And what that, just to give you language, if you're not familiar with this, to give you language in the development world for that, that is the language of an asset-based approach to development, and an asset-based approach says you don't go in with this view that, the, the communities you're working in or working with are deficient, that they, they, they live in poverty and they have no way to address that poverty, so they need someone from the outside to intervene and come in. That's a deficient model of, of development. We started to, to grab onto an asset-based approach which says we're not coming in as the outside experts to bring all the answers. We're coming in to listen, to ask questions. You can see the, the, uh, the, the, the way that we even define Kibo uh, and the development work that we do. We ask good questions rather than importing solutions. We, we look for root causes rather than just treating secondary symptoms. Um, We try to lift whole communities rather than just rescuing individuals here and there that we can put in a newsletter. We're trying to do a a three-inch lift of entire communities rather than a a saving of one or two uh, uh, lucky souls. Um, uh, We try to uh, lead with locals rather than think in terms of outside expertise. And in all of that, we are the partners and the locals lead the way and we are given the privilege of being um, alongside and uh, consulting and empowering and enabling and helping and and all of that. But we're the submissive partner in it all. Um, And when that happens, not only is God glorified, but you have holistic development that starts to break out. And I'm I'm going to, um, I said I had one more story and I'm going to tell you that one more story this one doesn't have as much to do with it specifically within a religious peace building although there were religious dynamics at play between catholics and protestants and between christians and muslims that i won't i won't go into just for the sake of time but i want to tell you just about one of our projects and it's a project that that is that is wrapped up in um, uh, safe stoves for women to have Uh, Women in Uganda spend half of their life, if not more, collecting firewood, building fires, cooking food, boiling water over open flames. And a lot of times in situations like this, um, in the villages of Uganda, no electricity, no running water, of course. And so the three stone fire is the, the, uh, or the three stone stove is the way that people cook. And they put three stones, they put wood in between, and then they put the pot on top of the stones, as you can see here, build the fire underneath, and this woman sitting there spends a large percentage of her life doing that. There are all kinds, and if we had more time, I would go into the details of this, but there are all kinds of health issues, all kinds, I mean, you can imagine. Women spend half their life collecting firewood, then they're in little, small, closed-in places building fires. The smoke goes into their eyes, the smoke goes into their lungs, they have problems breathing in later life, they can't see. Their children are falling into the fire because it's open flames, and so you have a lot, when you have 10 kids and a lot of children running around, people falling in, and you have health risks, you have risks there. You have the the thing that especially led to some of our uh, work is you have women going out and having to collect firewood every day in an area that's increasingly deforested and so they're having to go farther and farther from their home every day which makes more of their time more of their life is wrapped up in just collecting firewood it also means that the every day they're going farther and farther from their home to collect firewood which puts them at safety risks there have been a number of cases of sexual sexual harassment rape and other things because these women are having to go hours outside of, uh, away from home. So you have all these things wrapped up. And part of what Kibo does, and when I say what we do, I mean our Ugandan staff that we have the privilege of partnering with and enabling and empowering. Um, But part of what Kibo does is that we do a safe stove project where we go into communities and we help women Gather together, help one another to build safe stoves. And and very quick explanation here of what you're seeing. Um, you have local mud being used, so you don't have anything that was developed in Chicago and then you know flown into big crates into Nairobi and then driven across. And all these Europeans or uh, you know show up with a, open up the big crate, say here we're here to help you. Here's your this is stuff developed and created by local mud with some consultation and training for how to do that and how to make it stick and all that stuff. But the women do it themselves. We have communities of women that come together and help each other build these safe stoves. You have a safe stove there down at the bottom and what a safe stove is, is it's just a mud created stove instead of an open fire. You have the fire inside an enclosed area with a little hole on top and they put their pots on that hole. And think of what this does. In, an, in, a three, in a three stone fire, how much of that heat actually goes into the food and how much of it goes into the air? Well, most of it goes into the air. Most of it is lost. The, the, ge- the heat generated is lost. With this, it takes a tenth. That's a, a, I'm not throwing that out. Uh, that's a statistic. It takes a tenth of the amount of firewood to do the same work because the, fi- because the heat is used efficiently because all the heat is channeled up into the... And then you have this enclosed thing, which keeps children safe. We have a little vent system out the back, which takes away all of the smoke, which means it takes away all the problems with eyes, it takes away the problems with lungs, and because you're... We also do reforestation, so we're planting trees to help with that, but because you, you, you have 10 times the efficiency use of your wood, that means you're going out and collecting wood 10 times less which opens up time for the mothers to do other things. It makes them safer. It All of that because of a simple stove made out of mud. And our organization and our churches are there in the middle of it all, getting Muslim and Christian and non-religious women... They, if I could, I wish I had a video to show you the joy in these women when they're making these stoves and they're putting it together and they're dancing and they're and they're. I mean, it is just joyful. And who gets the credit at the end of the day? Not the Europeans closing up the back of their truck and driving away. They get it. It's 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 socially and spiritually and communally empowering. Even as, as it's addressing. Bad eyesight, bad lungs, safe children, sexual harassment, I mean, the the list goes on and on, deforestation, and I'll just end by just drawing your attention to this woman down here on the left. Just a smile on her face, and she decided to paint her stove after it was done. So you have artistic expression here. You have a woman that has Multiple times more free time, not free, that free time is not the right word in Uganda, but multiple times of more time to spend on other priorities with her children and doing other things and in a home that's safer and that is now she sees as part of her identity. There's all, I've said a whole lot there and um, we do have a couple of minutes left. I will see if anyone wants, uh, especially with, uh, I know we had a late start, so. Uh, I was hoping for about 10 minutes, but um, I know I've said a whole lot there. All I know to do uh, for some of this is to invite you, maybe even request you, go on to Kibo's website and explore this around and see a little bit what we call the Kibo way and think about what this means in our local places here as the world changes around us, as there are new conflicts and new uh, communities and new challenges around us all the time, how can we open up our imagination to see what God is calling us to for a new era? I think what I'll do is just end with that, and then I'll, I'll invite anyone who wants to come and ask uh, questions or talk about anything. Please come and see me. I'd be happy to do that, but um, let, let's, let's end with a word of prayer, and then we'll be done. God, we thank you for the privilege that we have to be called by you, to be called into a world that you love, and to be put in partnership um, with what you're doing through your spirit, through communities and people all over. God, make us humble, open our eyes and ears, help us to be attentive to who you are, to where you are, to what you're doing and give us the courage to open up our imaginations and our hearts to join you in ways that maybe we wouldn't have imagined before. And God, we also pray that your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, and thank you for the privilege that we have to contribute to that. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone.